Hey there, friends. It's a new day, and I'm glad that you're joining me on The Bible in Life. Yesterday was Mother's Day where I live, and my mom posted a picture of herself with her mom from a handful of years ago, and got me thinking about my grandma, and my grandma and grandpa were very close with us when we were growing up as kids, a very big part of our life, and I have this vivid memory of my grandma. Virtually every morning I was over there, she would throw open the curtains to her sliding glass door that looked out into her backyard, and she would uh, throw open those curtains and say, good morning, world, and she would do it with such joy and be so happy, and and so today I woke up and I was tired and worn out. I didn't sleep particularly good last night, but thinking about my grandma, I was like, you know what? It's a good day to be alive. Good morning, world. This is the day that the Lord has made, and I'm going to rejoice and be glad in Him. And so, um, welcome to this episode of the podcast, and we've been in this series uh, on hope and really looking at individual passages in, in the Bible, exploring our Christian hope and maybe trying to help us understand that hope a little bit more, as well as fan into flame our hope a little bit more because it's supposed to fuel our life and drive us. And so we're looking at some of these passages, wrestling with that. Last week, um, or in the last episode, I mentioned a couple books that if you want to, if you're a reader and you want to know more about our hope that I thought would be really useful to you, one is simply called Heaven by Randy Alcorn, and one is called Surprise by Hope by N.T. Wright. Uh, I think both those books are just really, really solid and give a lot of good information. Different sort of focus on each of those books, but both can be really helpful to helping us understand our hope and fan into flame our hope and figure out how to live in light of it. And so recommend those two books by you. I'll put the links in the notes down below. If you're interested in ordering either of those books, you can do so right from those links. So you can check that out. In today's study, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. A fairly well-known text dealing with our hope. You know, one of the major elements of Christian hope, one of the major facets of it is this idea of Jesus' return. And so we're looking forward to Jesus' return. In fact, that idea is probably uh, emphasized in some ways more throughout the New Testament than a lot of other things. And I suspect the reason for that is because we can't totally grasp what the future world's going to be like. We can't totally grasp what the new earth is going to be like. We talked about the new earth some last week, and we can we can take you know shots in the dark a little bit. We can picture some of it. We can maybe begin to get an idea, but we we have a vague understanding of that. But we can grasp the idea of somebody who loves us and somebody whom we love coming back to us, right? Like returning to us after having been gone for a long time. Maybe it's a father who's away on a business trip. Maybe it's a husband who's away uh, traveling for work or who's in the military or whatever it is. And now after being gone for a long time, they've come home. They've come back to us. We can picture that. We know how that feels. And certainly the idea of Jesus our Savior and our Lord, who loves us and whom we love, returning for us. We we can at least get that, right? And I suspect maybe that's part of the reason why the New Testament emphasizes Jesus' return for us uh, as something we can actually grasp and hold on to as a key component of our hope. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is one of the, the key texts really detailing, describing this idea of Jesus' 
returning, Jesus coming back uh, for his people. Um, And so we're going to look at that text. What I want to do is I want to kind of read down through it, set it in its context, and read down through it with some comments and make sure we understand what's being said there. And then I want to talk about um, one way it's often understood, and I'm not so sure that's correct. And then I want to talk about its major point and the implications for us. All right, so that's kind of where we're going on this episode. And so this text picks up this way. First Thessalonians 4.13 says, um, Now I don't want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. The imagery of asleep is that of having died. And so he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died. Fellow Christians who have now died before the Lord has returned. Okay, that's who he's talking about. So that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. All right, now let's pause right there and let's set this then text and what he's about to say in its context and in its purpose based on what the Apostle Paul has to say. And so he is writing this to the Thessalonians. Apparently, they're having some concern about some question or some issue about the status of or place of the future fate of fellow Christians who have died since coming to faith in Jesus, and yet Jesus hasn't returned yet. What happens to them? And we don't know exactly what their question was. We don't know what motivated. We just know that's the setting for this text, that there's some issue in their uh, heart and mind about what happens to these guys, and we don't know why they have that, but that's the question. And then Paul says, I'm going to tell you these things because I don't want you to grieve as the rest who have no hope. And that's very culturally really relevant to their culture and in some ways to our culture. Um, The Greco-Roman world of Thessalonica in the first century to whom Paul is writing, the Christians in that city, man, that that world just was a pretty hopeless world. You know, Platonic philosophy did not... um, view the body with with much regard. And so the body was viewed as sort of a, a tomb, a prison house for the soul. So if there was any afterlife, it was the release of the soul um, back into the world of the, you know, Im- the immortal world of spirits or whatever else. And so there was that. But even that, that, that wasn't even real popular at the popular level. In fact, one, um, one Greek writer Theocritus actually says this about hope. He says, hopes are for the living. The dead are without hope. I mean, the dead are without hope. It's that kind of world that Paul is writing to. Um, The world that believed that, you know, there was a time when you weren't, then you came to be, and now all of a sudden you're not again, and that's that. You're just, life is over, you don't exist anymore. Or if there was some sort of belief in the afterworld, the afterlife, it was sort of this vague, shadowy sort of idea. Now, interestingly enough, I think in some ways we've almost kind of returned to that in our post-Christian society as it now is, at least in uh, American context. If we speak of an afterlife at all, it's sort of this vague, shadowy, fuzzy sort of thing without any concrete you know, feeling to it. Uh, well, he's in a better place now. Well, at least he's without pain now. But we can't conceive of it. We don't picture it. We don't really know what we're looking forward to, which in a lot of ways, is the impetus behind this series, that there is more to our hope than that. And so Paul is writing these words to a world that was largely hopeless in view of death, and he doesn't want the Christians to really 
live with that same sort of hopelessness. And so, yes, believers have died and Jesus hasn't returned, but that doesn't mean we're without hope. And so he's going to explain what kind of hope they have. All right. And this is what he says, beginning in verse 14. He says, for explaining this, here's our hope for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Basic Christian belief, basic Christian confession, the hope we have is founded on that, on on the really the heart and soul of the gospel that Jesus died and then rose again. So what we believe about, uh, what we believe in the face of death isn't just like wishful thinking pie in the sky. It's rooted in a historical fact, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So if we believe that, even so, Paul writes, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So that implies that those who have died, those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ, are currently with God, with Jesus, in heaven, in wherever God and Jesus are, in God's space, in God's realm. Now, they're with him now, and when Jesus returns, he's going to bring them with him. They they will return with him. So even so, we believe that, that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. So those of us who remain are still alive when Jesus does finally return, that's who he's talking about, will not precede those who have died. Um, Again, we don't know the exact confusion the Thessalonians uh, were having, but this is somehow related to it. And maybe they were, I don't really know what they were thinking on that, all right? But Paul says, Emphatically, those of us who are alive when Jesus returns aren't going to be, you know, we're not going to have pride of place. We're not going to proceed in some way those who have died. For here's what's going to happen. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, probably strong shout of command is the idea of that word, right? Like a, a maybe a shout to, to like Jesus gave at Lazarus' grave in John chapter 11, a shout of command, Lazarus come forth, maybe that kind of shout calling um, the dead to life. Maybe that kind of shout, maybe it's a shout of victory, like, you know, the Jesus as uh, rightful Lord and King returning to his world, giving a shout of victory over all his enemies, including the final enemy, death itself. But some sort of shout of command, shout of victory. So the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, uh, and with the trumpet of God. So there's going to be a trumpet blast. Again, this is sort of this almost symbolic ceremonial act of victory and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who have died in Christ are going to be resurrected first. They're going to be raised up. Then we who are alive and remain, those of us who are living when Jesus returns, are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, he says, comfort one another with these words. Now, just a couple general comments to help us understand some of the imagery in this text, because Paul does use an awful lot of imagery, imagery that grew out of his world. In fact, um, even the word coming in this text uh, has significance, symbolic significance, that the the original audience, the original uh, readers of this, they would have felt the weight of it. So when it says that in verse 15, though that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, that word coming, parousia in Greek, 
Um, it's usually translated coming, but it means more presence. Those of us who remain um, until the presence of the Lord, meaning the, the manifest presence, until the curtains are pulled back and Jesus is all of a sudden here, present, around us. Well, one of the major ways that word was used in the ancient world was for the appearing, the arrival of a significant dignitary, oftentimes the emperor in a major city. Here's how it would work in the Greco-Roman world of Paul's day. Say the emperor is coming to Thessalonica for a visit. Um, Obviously, you know, without the means of mass communication, they didn't know exactly when he would arrive. And so they just knew he was going to be making a visit. They would get things ready. They would prepare. And then finally, when the emperor was on the outskirts of town... There would be a huge announcement, right? Maybe a trumpet blast, some sort of big announcement, some sort of do-do-do-do, right? That kind of thing. And there would be a welcome party from within the city of dignitaries and others who, whose whole job it was was to go out of the city gates, out uh, down the road, some distance to wherever the emperor and his entourage was to meet him and then escort him back into the city so that he was escorted with proper fanfare and proper ceremony. That's the way it was supposed to work. And that's the way it worked in the ancient world. Well, that's the imagery that Paul is using in this text. And so you you get a sense of that. So when it says that um, those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord, Lord in the air, the imagery in this text and the way it would have been heard in the first century is we're going um, to the clouds in the air, not to stay in the clouds and, you know, be with the Lord in the clouds. The whole point is we're going to welcome him to his proper domain. The king is returning to his world. The rightful uh, ruler of this world is returning to the world that is his, and we're going to him to escort him, to come with him back to the world that is his, to this world uh, that he is going to make brand new again. And so that's really important if we're going to hear this text rightly. It's not being caught up to stay up there in the cloud somewhere, um, but to to escort him back to this world. Let me read you the way N.T. Wright describes it in uh, that book, Surprised by Hope, that I mentioned. It says this, when the emperor visited a colony or a province, the citizens of the country would go to meet him some distance from the city. It would be disrespectful to have him actually arrive at the gates as though his subjects couldn't be bothered to greet him properly. When they met him, they wouldn't stay out in the open country. They would escort him royally into the city itself. So when Paul speaks of meeting the Lord in the air, the point is precisely not that the saved believers would then stay up in the air somewhere away from the earth. The point is that having gone out to meet their returning Lord, they will escort him royally back into his domain. That is back to the place that they have just come from. So the picture in this text is of the world's rightful king arriving back at his domain Having conquered all his enemies, the final enemy to be defeated is death. And now he has conquered that by this loud shout of command. The dead have been raised and he's returning to his realm that is rightfully his. And we as his people, as his kingdom, now meet him in the air to escort him back to this world. That's the picture that 1 Thessalonians 4 paints about Jesus' return. Now, this passage is probably the most well-known text that's used to support the popular idea of the rapture, such as you see in like the Left Behind book series and some of that. 
But man, I just have a hard time seeing it, if I'm being honest with you. As I read this text in its original context, hear it the way the original audience would have heard it, look at the language of the text, I'm having a really hard time seeing that popular rapture idea. One, because of this idea of... um, going into the air to escort the the king royally back into his realm, back to his domain, doesn't fit with the popular uh, rapture idea. And yet that's what the language means. Also, I don't have a hard time seeing it because of a loud shout of command, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, whereas the popular rapture idea is kind of the secret, silent sort of rapture thing. And here we have all sorts of noise. Um, So I just don't think that's what Paul is getting at. And so It seems that what he's getting at is that there's going to be this day when Jesus, the king, the rightful uh, heir to this world, uh, returns to his domain and all those who are with him are going to gather around him and they're going to escort him back into this world. And then at that point, probably, if I understand the New Testament right, at that point, um, we're going to have the judgment and we're going to be ushered into our eternal states. There might be more to it than that, but that seems to be what's going on at this point in the text. Now, all that being said, let's not lose the main point of this text because of some of the details of how it's going to work out or some of our theological kind of background and heritage. The main point of this text is really to answer this question. What happens to believers who die before Jesus returns? And this text says, well, that the Lord is going to return and the dead are actually going to be resurrected. And they're actually going to be resurrected before the living are transformed into their new eternal glorified bodies. And so the Lord's going to return. There will be a victory celebration. The dead are going to be resurrected. And so the main point of this text is when the Lord returns, the dead will rise and we'll all be together with the Lord forever. That's the point. And that's where it ends. So we shall all be with the Lord forever. And so however it all plays out, Don't lose that main point that when the Lord returns, the dead will rise and we'll all be with the Lord forever. Therefore, he says, comfort one another with these words that we don't have to grieve hopelessly. If if we have loved ones in Christ who have died, we'll all be together with the Lord forever in glorious reunion forever and ever and ever. Death is a comma in a person's life not the period. It's not the end of the line. It's not the end of the sentence. It's just a comma. And there is more to come. And uh, Jesus will care for even now those who have died in him. He'll bring them with him and they will be raised, get a glorious resurrected body just like Jesus's. And thus, we have great hope and great comfort, even in the face of death. You know, in our culture, not unlike their culture, Death is increasingly viewed as the end of the line. Um, You know, I've known plenty of people who just say things like, well, you know, death is just part of life. There's not much you can do about it. Um, You know, you try to offer some comfort. It's like we just have to accept it because it's just that's just the way life is. You know, I mean, people live for a little while and they die. But that's not the Christian view. The biblical view, the Christian view is that... um, There is life after death. There is not only life after death, there's life after life after death. There's resurrection life to come. And so those who have died in Christ will live forever. And therefore, we can have great hope even in the face of death. 
when I was in my uh, 20s, I was uh, serving in youth ministry, and some of my students went to a Christian school here in in the area in which I, I live. And one of the more popular teachers was the music and creative arts teacher, and she was murdered. And we ended up going to the funeral. I will never forget the way the funeral began. The funeral began with this uh, lady's brothers and sisters all taking the stage with microphones in hand and singing a classic hymn, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, God of Glory, Lord of Love. And they sang this hymn, I'm sure with grief in their hearts, but it wasn't hopeless grief. It was hope-filled grief. And that's the difference. Um, and that funeral was really a hope-filled funeral. Why? Because death isn't the end, and so we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Because someday the curtain's going to be pulled back, the Lord Jesus will appear, and He, as rightful King and Lord, will come to this world, and all those who are in Him will be with Him. Those who have died in Him will be raised with new glorious bodies. Those who are alive when He returns will have their bodies transformed to a powerful, uh, eternal, never-dying kind of body, and we'll all be together with the Lord forever. And so, death has been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus, and we we can grieve in a hope-filled sort of way. We look forward to the day when our King will appear, when He will arrive, and we will escort Him into His proper domain. Hey, thanks for joining me on this episode of the Bible in Life. I pray that it's encouraging to you to know that we have such a king as this for whom even death can't stop his power. Once again, thanks to all of you who are supporters of the Bible in Life podcast, either through my Patreon page or through World Family Mission. I appreciate you so much. Thanks to those of you who support prayerfully uh, the Bible teaching ministry that I'm engaged in by creating Bible teaching resources online so that people can can have access to resources to help them learn and live the Bible right at the palm of their hands. So thanks for all your support and your encouragement. God bless you guys. I will see you in the next episode of The Bible in Life.